All right. Well, good morning. It's good to see each one of you here. To our visitors, welcome. We're, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, Jared's going to come and give us our call to worship here in just a second. Uh, a couple reminders. Uh, Grace Marriage, we're going to be signing up for the second year of that starting April 15th. And that's just a, a marriage wellness program. It's a, a, a marriage seminar that uh, goes throughout the year. And, and it's just the, the has the idea of trying to be proactive, not waiting till our marriage is falling apart to try to work on it, but, but work on it on the front end. And so that, that will happen on April 15th. And then just let me welcome everyone and invite you. Uh, we'll have a meal immediately following our service this morning. And everyone's invited. Everyone's welcome. Uh, we've got plenty of food, so even if you forgot that we were doing that or you didn't bring food or you're a guest, just, just stick around and have some food, have a meal with us if you don't have uh, other plans. So, Jared, you come at this time. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. It should be a fairly familiar passage of Scripture, and if you were in Sunday school, it's probably going to be really familiar, but it's dealing with the resurrection. I'll just say, as you're turning there, uh, Resurrection Sunday is probably the closest thing to Christmas for the church because we think about Christmas, we think about waking up, all the kids are excited about getting gifts and all that, but the scriptures teach us that when Christ was raised and after he ascended, he gave gifts to men. He poured out gifts of blessing on the church, and so we have a lot to be thankful for, and I don't want to say that and, and get you just to be looking at the gifts and not the giver. I want us to see Christ this morning. I want us to relish Christ to love him, uh, to appreciate all that he's done, but just to recognize that, that Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday as we call it, this is like the high point for us. This is the Super Bowl of Christianity for us. Without this event that we celebrate today, there is no Christianity. And if, you're, if you don't understand that, there's no zero hope that we have forgiveness of sins if Jesus didn't raise from the dead bodily. And so we have everything that we celebrate from a week-to-week -week basis hinges on the reality of this resurrection that we're going to hear read here and hear preached and proclaimed in a minute. So if you're there, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's true for all of us. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's worthless. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's why this is crucial to our Christian faith. But he doesn't leave the, the message there. Listen to verse 20 as we close this out. But in fact, Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Will you pray with me? Father, we glory in the resurrection. Our very existence as a people of God is owing to an empty tomb. The fact, not the myth, not the theory, not a legend, but the, the, the incontrovertible fact that Jesus Christ was raised from death bodily, physically, came forth from that tomb and is alive. He ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. He is making intercession for the saints ever. Uh, to, he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. He is always and constantly pleading his wounds before your throne. And our very existence as a sanctified, set-apart people of God owes to the fact that he lived, that he died, that he was raised. In fact, you've set your seal of approval on his message. You have set your seal of approval on the atoning value of his sacrifice by raising him from the dead and not just quietly raising him from the dead. You proclaimed that message early from the, the first preachings of the church, but you showed him alive to hundreds and hundreds of witnesses that also proclaimed the resurrection of Christ. And so we have great credible uh a great credible foundation to stand on this morning when we proclaim that there is a man who has raised from the dead and by faith in him one day we also will be raised from the dead. And I know that message is hard and I know that that message is foolish to some, but God, it is the message of salvation and as Paul says, there's no gospel without that truth. And so I pray that anyone here today that thinks that's foolishness, that in grace and mercy and love that you would win them over. God, that you would change the hearts of the hardened sinner, that you would change the heart of the skeptic, that you would change the heart of the unbeliever this morning, those who wrestle with the validity and the factuality of the resurrection of Christ. I pray, God, that you would win them over by your kindness, that you would show them through the preaching and proclamation of the word and the exercise of your sovereignty on their hearts and minds, that you would win them over today, that people would leave here believing in Jesus Christ unto eternal life. God, we praise you and glorify you because the life that we have, the hope that leaves us, uh, that, that, that moves us and, and lifts us to you is a hope rooted in and grounded in the truth of, of Christ's resurrection. He is the first to leave the grave, never to die again. He is the first fruits then and the guarantee that we also will rise from the grave never to die again. And in that we glory, in that we take great comfort, God. And those are the things that we want to worship and praise you for as we gather here on Resurrection Sunday. Glory to your name, O God, and glory for an empty tomb. Amen. Let's have our ushers come forward, and uh, as he's uh, sending a word of thank you to us as a church, we're going uh, to carry this out. What we talk about all the time, that it's through your giving that we're able to support people like Josh and many, many other missionaries who are taking the gospel around the world. Um, just a reminder that 
We are continuing to take up our Annie Armstrong Easter offering. We have yet to reach our goal for that. Uh, so uh, today, I believe, really will be the last day uh, for that. And we're praying that God would lead you to give generously. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the work that you've done in our lives. We thank you that you sent someone to share the gospel with us so that we could hear and believe. Uh, we know your word tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we thank you for that gift in our lives. And we recognize that many people around the world, people even sometimes in our own country, uh, really don't have access to the gospel. They don't have anyone who's telling them about this resurrected Christ that we're serving today. So Lord, help us to be faithful and generous givers uh, that many missionaries will be able to go out in our own country and around the world to share that great news. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and go ahead and turn to Ephesians. We're gonna continue our series in Ephesians this morning, and we, we fall in a good place because we're gonna be talking about the resurrection in this passage. We'll be in Ephesians chapter number one. And uh, beginning at verse number 15, Ephesians 1, 15. The Apostle Paul says this, For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is thankful for the Ephesian believers. He's thankful that he's heard about their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, I thank God for you and I remember you in my prayers. And now verse 17, he's going to tell us what he prays for these Ephesian believers. And it's what I'm praying for myself and it's what I'm praying for you this morning. He's remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know with certainty, I think he's saying, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, sometimes we talk about Christians growing in their faith. And I think one of the things that we typically mean when we talk about growing or maturing in your faith, uh, a lot of times we talk about uh, gaining more knowledge. So uh, we have really tried to emphasize that here, that we want to be a church that makes disciples, that grows disciples. And what that process involves is opening the scripture, studying it, coming to find out more and more of what God's word teaches and growing in our knowledge of what we believe. And that's certainly one way that Christians grow uh, in their faith. And it's an, important, uh, it's an important aspect of our growth. But there's actually another way that you can grow in your faith. And it's not so much coming to know new things 
learning new things that you didn't know before. That's one way to grow. But there's another way to grow in which we come to know the things that we know, but we know them in a more certain and a more real way with greater assurance. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is praying for, for this Ephesian church. It's what I'm praying for myself and praying for you. It's a matter of coming to grow in the certainty regarding the things that we believe. We're here on Easter morning and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we could go in a million different ways, but here's the reality for most of you, depending on how long you've been saved or how long you've been around the church, you've heard dozens, maybe even hundreds of, of Easter sermons, maybe not hundreds, right? Because that would be pretty old, right? But you've heard dozens of Easter sermons, and there's probably not too much new that I could convey to you this morning uh, uh, some new truth or some new facet or new aspect to uh, what's going on in the resurrection. And so you're not really going to grow in that way this morning. Maybe there are some that that might be the case. Uh, but one of the ways that you can learn is coming to believe and coming to know uh, what, what we're talking about here in a way that you have more assurance, more conviction that this really is true. That God really did raise Jesus up on the third day. And that's what I'm praying. That's what Paul, I think, is praying for uh, these Ephesians. He's praying, look at the substance of his prayer in verse uh, uh, 17. I'm praying, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I'm praying that you would receive the spirit in a way that this spirit that gives wisdom, that, that word just means insight. To have wisdom or insight means that you see the way things really are. I'm praying that God would give you the spirit to help you see the way things really are, that, that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That word revelation has the idea of, of something that has been disclosed or something that has been covered before and now it's uncovered. I'm praying that the spirit who does that, it's the spirit that leads us into truth. I'm praying that the spirit who reveals things, who, who, who discloses truth and who opens that up for all to see, I'm praying that God would give you that spirit so that you may know these things. And we're going to talk about what those things are. I'm praying that you would receive the spirit so that you will know these things. Now, here's the quandary. Here, here's the problem. He's writing to Ephesian believers who already know the gospel. They already know about their inheritance. We've talked about it in the first chapter. They already know the hope of their calling. They already know the power of God. They have already believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is Paul praying? How can he pray for them to know something that they've already known? Well, I think the answer is exactly what, what I've been saying here. He's praying not that they would come to have a new knowledge about it, or see some new facet about the resurrection or their inheritance or the hope of their calling. He, he's praying that God would do a unique and a special work through his Holy Spirit in their heart to convince them of the truth and the reality of the things that they've already believed, the things that they've already confessed. You see they already have faith, don't you? Look at verse, uh, verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. 
They already heard the gospel. They already believed it. Uh, verse 15, they had already had faith. He said, look, I'm praying. And one of the things I pray about in verse 15 is I thank God for your faith in Jesus Christ. They already heard the gospel. They already heard about the resurrection. They already heard those things. They already knew them, but they didn't know them to the degree and, and with the certainty and with the assurance that the apostle Paul wanted them to know it. You see, there's, there's knowing it and then there's knowing it in your heart and being persuaded by it and having assurance and having conviction that it's real and that it's true. That's what he says here. In verse 18, this it helps us understand exactly what he's saying because he says, I'm praying that you get a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So what he wants them to know is have greater knowledge of God. But look what he says in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. You see, what Paul is praying for is not just that they would have a head knowledge. There are a lot of people who have a head knowledge. They've been in church for a long time and they could recite all about Christmas and all about Easter and they could tell you all about different doctrines that we find in the Bible. They could tell you all about who Jesus was and what the Bible teaches. They've been, they've been around. They have a head knowledge of these things, but Paul's saying, I'm praying for something deeper than just a head knowledge. I'm praying that these truths Take, settle into your soul. The heart in the Bible is, is the center. It's the core of your being. He's saying, I'm praying that the Spirit of God would come on you in a unique way that would help these truths rest deep in your soul, that they would take root and that they would have an anchor in the core of your being so that you would really know them, that you would really believe them, that you would be convinced that they are true. I think that's what he's praying. You know, one of the Great problems with professing, many professing believers is they don't know what they know. They don't know what they know. I, I, I hear people talk all the time and they talk about what they believe about heaven. And they talk what they believe about Jesus Christ. And they say, yeah, I believe Jesus Christ. But, but you look at their lives and you look at the way that they live and, and, and you look what the, the way that that impacts them. And there's, there's something that doesn't fit, right? If Jesus rose from the dead, if the hope of salvation that we have is in believing in him and, and following him, then, then there's got to be some change in your life. There's got to be some impact that that belief has on your life. And the problem is too often we say we believe things, we say we know them, but we don't know what we know. We don't have certainty. We don't have conviction that they're true. And so we're, our lives are, are not impacted in, in a great way. One of the greatest ways a Christian can grow then is not through studying the Bible and learning things that they didn't already know. One of the greatest works that God can do in your life, Christian, this morning is come through the Holy Spirit and give you a certainty, give you assurance, give you conviction that these things that we're talking about really are true. That Jesus really is the Son of God. That He really did die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And that three days later that God really did raise Him from the dead. When you come to have conviction about those things, when you come to have certainty about those things, when you are rooted in that truth, it anchors your life and it, it, it guides you. It, it gives you direction. It changes the way that you live. 
And I think that's one of the greatest ways that we can grow. Too often, our lives are not motivated, they're not animated by a certainty of the things that we profess. I'll give you a few examples. You say that there's a coming judgment day and that you'll give an account for your sins before Almighty God. You say that you believe that and yet we don't turn from our sins The question has to be, really, doesn't it? Do you really believe that? You're going to stand before God and give an account for your sin and you will not relinquish it now? You will not turn from it? Do you really believe that? You you say that you know that God will bless and provide for his children and that he promises to bless those who are generous and faithful givers and yet you do not give. You profess to believe that, but do you really believe that if if it doesn't lead you and compel you to actually be a generous person and to give? You say that you know that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that apart from him, no one will be saved. And yet you're not, you're not motivated to open your mouth and share the gospel. You really believe that you have the only way of salvation, that you possess that knowledge, and you're unwilling to share it with others? Do you really believe that? You say that you know that we're headed for an eternal heavenly home and that everything we do here is all in preparation for eternity And yet you continue to lay up treasures here on this earth? You do not lay up treasures in heaven? Do you really believe that? You see, the great problem, as I've already said, is that we don't know what we know. We don't truly believe what we claim to believe. It's not that we don't have faith, I think. It's that our faith isn't as strong as it needs to be. We believe them, but we don't believe them with the level of conviction, with the level of certainty that we need to believe. I think we see this, don't you, in, in, in the way that Jesus talks about his disciples. He says to them, O ye of little faith. He didn't say they didn't have faith. He said their faith was little. And they needed to grow in their faith. I, I think that's what he's saying. You need to grow in the certainty that these are true, that I really am the Son of God. O ye of little faith. I'm, I'm reminded of the man who came to Jesus, and Jesus, uh, he, he brought his son who was Uh, possessed by a demon and asked Jesus to cast out the demon and to heal his son. And Jesus said, look, if you believe, uh, all things are possible. And he says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And I think that's where too many of us are at. Our faith is a little faith. It's a weak faith. It's a, it's a faith that's mixed with uncertainty. It's a faith that's mixed with doubt. And what the Apostle Paul is praying for right now for you and for me and what I'm praying for our church is that we would come to a place where these things are so real to us, they're as real as us sitting here today. Because all too often that's not the case. You know, I, I think as you think on people who have lived in the past in church history and you think back to great men of God and women of God who, who attempted great things. Men like Adoniram Judson who was willing to leave his family behind and go to Burma and, and give his life serving to take the gospel to Burma. You think about somebody like Martin Luther who is willing to stand up in the church of his day and say, no, this is the gospel. Here I stand. I can do no other. When you look back on men like that who endured so much for the cause of Christ. What can be the explanation of it? Do they have the same faith that we have? We believe in Christ. They believe in Christ. What what would lead people like Josh that we just saw? What would lead him to leave Murray, Kentucky and, and, and go to Malawi? Take his family there. 
What, what is it that drives people to attempt these great things for God? And I think the answer is not that we don't have faith and they do, but their faith is stronger. We, we need to come to a more settled place, a, a more convictional place in the way, uh, in the things that we believe. Let me ask you a question this morning. If I could prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt right now as you're sitting here this morning, if I could absolutely convince you that Jesus truly was the Son of God, that he died, that three days later he was raised, and I could convince you that in just a short time, very soon, he's going to return, how would your life change? If I could absolutely convince you beyond a shadow of doubt, no doubt left, no uncertainty left, no, no believing mixed with unbelief, no weak faith, but, but I could prove it to you in your mind that these things were real and true, what would change in your life? I think it would dramatically change, don't you? I know, I feel like my life would dramatically change if all uncertainty, if all doubt was removed. I think you, you would immediately run to your loved ones and plead with them to be saved. You would continue to struggle with sin and be tempted by sin, but you'd have a much greater motivation to overcome sin in your life. You'd stop worrying about your retirement and the sums of money that, that you have, and, and you, would, you would become a more faithful and generous giver. You would be on your knees night and day pleading with God to save your children and to save your lost loved ones. You would stop wasting your life just binge-watching TV series and you would use it to faithfully serve the Lord. You would be anxious, so anxiously awaiting the new heavens and the new earth that you wouldn't feel the need uh, to, to take luxurious vacations and, and to pamper yourself. You would spend hours in the day reading God's Word to be sure that you hadn't missed anything. Those are the kinds of things, I think, the kind of radical changes that would happen in your life if you came to a place of being certain. If I could convince you of that. But here's the reality. I can't convince you of that this morning. I can't get inside of your heart. I can't get inside of your mind and flip a switch to make you really believe this. But there, there's one who can. The Holy Spirit of God is a spirit of wisdom. And he's a spirit of revelation. And that's what Paul is praying for. I'm praying that God would give you a unique working of his spirit that, that he would reveal himself and reveal these things to you in such a way that you became absolutely confident of their truth. And through that, you would change. Your life would change. You would grow as a believer. Well, what is it that he wants them to know? What is it that Paul is praying that the Spirit of God would reveal to them? Well, he's got three things, I think, specifically in mind. And I'm going to focus primarily on the last one this morning. But I, I will mention and we'll, we'll point out to them, uh, point them out as we go. Uh, there's three things that he wants them to know. And he wants them to know with certainty. Do you see them in the text? He says, verse 18, having your eye, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, here's the first thing, what is the hope to which he has called you? The hope to which he has called you. This is the first thing. He's, he's praying that they would have certainty about this hope. The hope to which he has called us. He isn't, notice, I'll, I'll point this out. He isn't praying for them to receive these things. He's not praying He's not praying that I want you to be called or, or I want you to know the rich. I want you to have these riches of, of inheritance or, or that I want you to have the 
the power. He's not praying that they would receive these things. He's praying that they would come to know them with certainty. And the first thing is the hope of his calling. God's calling is his powerful word that brings us to faith. The Bible talks about uh, the call of God. And when it, when it does that, there's, there's typically two things that it means. One is the general call. Anytime that the word of God is preached, there's a call of God to sinners to repent, to turn from their sins and believe. But there's, a, there's another way that the word called is used in the Bible. And it's a special calling. It's God's powerful calling. It's a calling that actually accomplishes what God says. In the same way that God said, let there be light and there was light. So God calls to some individuals and he says, let there be faith. And there is faith. He calls them. He draws them into salvation. And he says, look, I want you to know the hope of that calling. When we hear that calling, when God stirs in our heart and we come to a place of repentance and faith. God has called us. He's drawn us to, to himself. And when he does that, a, a hope is born in our heart. He says, I want you to know the hope of your calling. That hope is the, is the hope of the resurrection. It's the hope of eternal life. It's the hope of heaven. When we're saved and God calls us to salvation, he, he gives us a hope. Uh, and he's saying here, Paul is saying in this prayer, I'm praying that you would know that hope. I'm praying that the Spirit of God would reveal that the things that you're hoping for, this glory that you're hoping for, heaven that you're hoping for, all of those things that you're longing for, and hope in the Bible usually doesn't mean like, I hope it happens. It, it means an expectation. I know it's coming. I know it's going to happen. And I'm longing for that day when it does happen. And so Paul is saying here, I want you to know the hope of your calling. I want heaven to be real to you. I want glory to be real to you. I want you to be able to see what is coming for you in the future in a real way right now so that your life will be changed. That hope of our calling is a hope of glory. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.27 where he talks about those who are called. He says, Romans 8.27, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called, those who experience this call of God in which he says, come to me. And we respond. He, he says that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. It works together for good, for your good, for the called according to his purpose, not your purpose. And there's a difference there. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. There's that word called again. He called you to faith. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So when he calls you to salvation, he declares you to be righteous. He gives you salvation. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Some people have referred to this passage and they said here we find an unbreakable chain. It's an unbreakable chain because it begins with God's foreknowing and his predestination. And it says all those that he foreknew, he called. Every, every last one of the ones who were foreknown, who were predestined, God called. And everyone whom he 
called, he then justified. And everyone that he justified, that he declared to be right with himself, he then will glorify. So if God knows you and if he calls you, he's going to get you to glory. That's the hope of your calling. This isn't, this isn't dependent on you. It, it isn't, if it were, if it were my salvation, if me getting to heaven were dependent on me, I would mess it up every single minute of every single day. I would not get to glory if it was dependent on me. But here Romans 8 says that those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he will glorify. That's the hope of your calling. It is glorification. That's the point of your life. That's the trajectory. That's the aim. That's the finish line. It's glory. It's heaven. And God's going to get you there. Do you have that hope? Paul's saying, I want you to know it. I want the Spirit to reveal the hope, that hope in your heart this morning in such a way that it's real, that it's certain to you. But there's a second thing here. And that is, he wants you to know with certainty and with confidence the glorious inheritance in the saints. And let me back up because I didn't say everything there. He wants you to know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. He doesn't just say, I want you to know about your inheritance. He, again, I said we talked about our inheritance, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but, but uh, the inheritance that my children have to look forward to is not too much. But, but this inheritance that God has given to his children is a rich inheritance. It is a glorious inheritance. And Paul's saying here, Christian, I want the Spirit of God to convince you in your heart that your eyes, the eyes of your heart would be open so that you would know, not just that you have an inheritance, but that you would know the riches of His glorious inheritance. Too many Christians seem to be living this life as if this is all we get, as if our retirement, as if, as if our home, as if our cars, this is it. And if God doesn't give us plenty of that stuff, we seem disappointed. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. You need to understand God is giving you a rich, glorious inheritance one day. And you need to come to know that with certainty. You need it to be real in your heart and mind. We, we sing songs about heaven and we talk about going to heaven but it doesn't seem to animate our life. It doesn't, it doesn't drive us. It doesn't change the way that we live. If you really were convinced that the last breath that you take here, you will step into eternity and be in the presence of God and inherit all of these wonderful and glorious things. Paul says, God has prepared for you things that eyes have never seen nor ears have heard what God's prepared for you. Do you really believe that this morning? If you do, if you're convinced by it, your life is going to change. You're going to, you're going to be okay when things don't work out in this life. You're going to be okay when you get cancer. Or you're going to be okay when, when your 401k takes a hit. Or you're going to be okay when, when these trials and tribulations happen in this life because you know you have a glorious inheritance. And that's what our eyes are on. Paul's saying, I want you to know that in your heart and in your soul. There's a third thing. And this is the greatness of his power toward us. Look again at verse number 19. The third thing I want you to know, I want the Spirit to convince you is real and true, is this. I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked 
in Christ. I want you to know, John Piper summarized it in this way, I want you to know that you have resurrection power now. I want you to know that you have resurrection power now. We, we see the calling, that's in the past. That's when we were saved. God called us to salvation. He said, I want you to know what's in the future, this glorious inheritance that you're going to have and you're going to receive one day. But right now, this is a here and now kind of promise. I want you to know that God's magnificent, immeasurable, great power, the power that is greater than all other power, is at work toward you right now in your life. The greatness, the immeasurable greatness of His power. Notice it isn't just power, it's immeasurable, great power. That He works, it says, with His great might. And it's His power, it's the power of God. He's talking about here. This power of God has been given to you, Christian, right now. It's at work in your life. And God is, God is utilizing all of his power right now through you and in you and toward you. Do you see that? It isn't, he doesn't just want you to know, oh, God is powerful. That's a wonderful truth to know. God is powerful. But he wants you to know that that power is being directed toward you. Do you see it? And what is it? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? God is using all of, of, of the resources of his omnipotence. All the power that he has is being directed at you, toward you. It's at work in your life. And Paul wants you to know that this morning. He wants that reality to be true in your heart and in your mind. He gives us here three things that demonstrate just how powerful this power is. He wants you to know that this power is great power. So he gives us three things to say, this is what that power is. The first is this, and that's why we're here this morning, the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. The power of God that is being directed towards you is the same power that God used to raise up Jesus and exalt him into the heavens. Look again at verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according this power that is being directed toward us is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. The power that did that, the power that we're celebrating this morning that called to the Son of God from the place of death and said, come forth, rise up, that same power that did that, and then as Jesus ascended into heaven, the same power that exalted Him and gave Him a place at the right hand of God the Father, the power that accomplished all that is now, believer, is being directed toward you. It's at work in your life. It's what God is doing in and through you. And you need to know that. You need to be aware of that. You see, Satan was an enemy of God and the greatest weapon that he yielded was death. And throughout human history, from the, the Bible says from the time of Adam, death reigned. Satan reigned through death. He's the enemy of God and his greatest power, his greatest, his greatest authority, his, his greatest weapon was death. 
And you read through the Bible, and one thing that every last person in the Bible has in common, when you read through genealogies, it says so-and-so begat so-and-so, and then it says, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And guess what? Every person who has ever lived either has died or is going to die. Death reigned. Satan reigned through death. But God in His great power sent His Son. And Jesus came and lived the sinless, perfect life that we should have lived. He died on the cross and Satan thought, here it is again. This, this is my weapon. This is my authority. This is my power that I've got. And I have defeated the Son of God. But the power of God said, no, no. Three days later, God the Father called forth and raised Jesus up, defeating Satan, defeating the enemy of God and triumphing over the greatest enemy, the greatest weapon of Satan. And the power that did all of that and then seated Christ at his right hand is directed now toward you who believe. God's working in this way. The second thing that we see that, that demonstrates how great this power is is the subjug, subjugation of all things. Verse 20, that worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And He put all things under His feet. You see, there's nothing that's outside of God's authority. There's nothing that is outside the reign of Jesus Christ. God raised Him from the dead. He seated Him at His right hand and He subjected every demon. He subjected Satan himself. He subjected death. He subjected everything in this world to Jesus Christ. And the power that worked all of that out, the power that accomplished all of that is now directed towards you, believer. That's what He's saying. There's one more thing he says, and then he gave him to be head over the church. Jesus Christ, the one who's the one who's head over all things, the one who everything has been subjected to him, has now been given as a gift to the church, to us, the church, not an organization, but to us as believers. And the power that did that, God is using in your life to save you, to redeem you to deliver you from sin, and to get you to heaven. This is the power. The resurrection isn't just about something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that is very real in our life. If you're a believer this morning, it's something that's very real. It has very real implications in your life right here and right now. Let me just close this morning with three application points. The first is this. Somebody might say, that's some great power. That's some awesome power, and it says that it's at work in my life, but I don't really see the work of God in, in that powerful way. I don't really see that at work in my life. Why, why don't I see it? I'm suffering. I've been diagnosed with cancer. I've lost my job. I've lost my retirement. I've, I, I'm struggling in my marriage. All of these things are going on, and this God who has all of this power, is said to be using that power in my life. Why are these things happening? 
Does God really have power? I'm praying to him. I'm asking him to do these things. I'm asking him to deliver me from sin. I'm asking him to protect me. I'm asking him to provide me, provide for me. I'm asking for him to give me physical health. And he's not doing that. So where is that power? Why do I suffer? Why do I struggle? Well, the answer is this. You're looking in the wrong places for that power. You're looking in the wrong places. You see, God's plan for you is not just to bless you physically and materially. And so many Christians are living that way. Like God is just here, kind of a genie in the bottle to make sure I have good physical health and to make sure that I'm provided for uh, uh, in, in terms of financial resources. And, and so there's, there's a problem there. But listen, God's plan for you is not a cozy retirement. God's plan for you is not to live your life out here in, in a place of just having good health all the time. God's plan for you is not to make your life easy and to make it better right now. God's plan for you, remember Romans 8? God's plan for you is glory. His plan for you is to get you to heaven, to an eternity with Him, and He's directing the, the full Use of his resources, all of his power is being directed at getting you to heaven. And guess what? Sometimes the greatest way for you to get to heaven is, is when God works in your life and he brings sickness because you're drifting away from him and you need to be reminded. Some of the, some of the times the greatest way for God to get you to heaven is, is to work in your life through suffering so that you will turn away from the sin that's there. Sometimes the, the greatest way for God to get you to heaven is allow you to feel the brokenness of this world so that you don't put all your eggs in this basket. No pun intended on, East, uh, intended on Easter morning. Uh, God doesn't want you to get comfortable here. God doesn't want you to live as if this is it. He wants you to live in light of glory. And he's working all those things out for your good. He's going to get you there. He is going to get you to glory. If he has chosen to save you, he will get you there because all of his power is at work doing that and accomplishing it. Second is this. I think we just need to come to a realization. Paul's praying that they would realize this power and I hope that we're coming to a realization of what this power would mean in our life. A couple of things that this power means. If God's power, the almighty power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in my life, what this means is that sin won't reign in your life. Romans chapter 6. The resurrection power, the resurrection of life of Jesus is at work in you. Sin cannot have dominion over God's people because God's power is at work. So Christian, don't think this is just who I am. I've just got this addiction. I've just got this struggle. I've just got a mouth. I just got, I've got this and I can't help it. No, no, no. The resurrection power of God is at work in your life. Sin, sin will not reign over you anymore. You have the power of God directed towards you. Circumstances won't overwhelm your faith. Satan won't defeat you. The Bible says that Satan's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may be destroyed. He wants to destroy your faith. But guess what? The power of God is directed to you. And so if you're a believer, Satan will not be able to finally defeat your faith. And what this means too is that death won't hold you. Death won't hold you. All of us live in some degree to fear, in fear of death. 
And we're all looming and we're all marching to that time. We're all marching to that point when, when God says this is it and it's over with. And we all live in fear of that. But guess what? The power of God that raised Jesus Christ up will raise you up too. It's directed toward you. The third and final thing this morning, and I've been praying that, I've been praying this this week, but I think the application for us is that we would pray to God and ask God to convince us that these things are true. Some of you are sitting there this morning and you're not even fully convinced that all of this is real and all of this is true. Pray to God that the Spirit of God would be given to you to reveal this to you or perhaps to reveal it to you in a greater way than has ever been revealed to you so that you will come to a place of certainty that the things that we've talked about this morning really are true. I'm praying that for you this morning. We need to be praying that for one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask right now that you would give us your spirit, who is a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation, that we would know that the, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would come to a place of absolute certainty and confidence about the, the truth of the resurrection, the truth of our calling, and the truth of this inheritance that we've been given. Lord, would you, would you work this in our lives? Reveal it to us. We're dependent on you. We're dependent on your spirit to do this work in our lives. And we, we pray that you would. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.